We're really delighted today to bring you an all-star team of researchers, experts, and service providers to talk about something we're all faced with right now, and that's navigating the talent shortage with alternative labor models while the demand for services is surging and often unpredictably. So let's meet our distinguished researchers. Today we have Professor Joseph Fuller, who leads the Harvard Business School Future of Work program. And the paper, the definitive paper that he and his team wrote is what I consider to be probably the best write-up on the topic of alternative labor models. And I've read almost all of them. So you, you have a, a good starting point if you're starting with this, with this study. It's been very well done. Today we are being led by John Ragsdale, a distinguished researcher at TSIA, that's the Technology and Services Industry Association. He not only heads up the research within TSIA, but he is just a genuinely curious analyst with a healthy real world perspective, and it represents service providers of all types. So you'll also hear from several peers, including our own Jim Doherty from Field Nation uh, with a 25 year enterprise services background, and he'll wrap up the conversation at the end and uh, let's get started. So John, would you like to kick off the conversation? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for uh, having me here today and thanks to everybody uh, for joining us. Professor Fuller, it is a real pleasure uh, to be here with you. I truly enjoyed your report and uh, as Chris said, there's been a lot of writing about the on-demand workforce, but yours was the first I saw that really went into detail about the highly skilled uh, on-demand workforce and some of the challenges and, and opportunities there. So your paper centered on the drivers and the benefits of on-demand work, and I found that uh, it was really in line with a lot of what we are seeing with challenges uh, with field service organizations with our members at TSIA. And just to recap uh, some of that, a very large percentage of field techs in North America and Europe are nearing retirement age. And unfortunately, there's a very low adoption of knowledge management practices. So uh, because they know everything, they're not really capturing everything they learn to share it uh, with other people. So when they leave the workforce, they're going to be taking that knowledge with them. And we're also seeing a constant rise of technology complexity. Uh, the first book my executives wrote was called Complexity Avalanche. So each issue gets harder and harder to solve. And part of that also is that companies are increasingly reliant on technology, and that means that there are ever more stringent service level agreements and penalties in place if we can't get a field tech uh, on site in time. So to me, it seems that looking at this highly skilled on-demand workforce is really the only way forward uh, to meet these service level agreements, particularly in geographies where you don't have a lot of customers, so it, you just can't financially keep full-time uh, employees in that area. And also uh, the other challenge we see is during peaks in demand, when your internal resources can't scale. We've got a, a lot of experts on uh, the retail industry. I spent a lot of years in, in that industry as well. And boy, when holiday comes, you know, it, there, there's never enough workers uh, to meet the needs uh, during, during the holiday peak. Uh, 
So I'm seeing more companies interested in alternatives to owned resources uh, for field service, but there's a lot of concern about the quality of workers, uh, both from the technical skills and the soft skills, because, you know, these, these, these folks are in your customer's home and office, and they have a huge impact on the customer experience and the perception of your brand. So I found your research on high skills digital marketplaces to really address these challenges and these risks. So Professor Fuller, one of the most interesting things for me in your paper was how perspectives on on-demand talent differ by roles and departments within the organization. Could you talk about how the interests and expectations for an on-demand workforce change as you move lower in the organization? Why is there such disparity in attitudes between the C-suite, middle management, and the HR organization? Well, John, that's a, that's a very interesting question, and, and thank you for the kind words about our research, and thanks to Chris as well. Um, I think the, the, it's indicative of one of several barriers that are is, uh, impeding uh, the adoption of these types of platforms, which, per your description, really do make a lot of sense given everything from the service level agreements that people are signing on for to the demographics of the workforce uh, and everything in between. Um, I think as you think, you have to think about uh, the metrics, basically, um, that each of those three constituencies inside the organization you mentioned uh, are measured by and what they have in mind, how they, how they think about the problem. Now, in our research, what it said is that senior level executives, C-suite executives, were quite enthusiastic about the prospects for these types of platforms, for the type of workforce augmentation and coverage you talked about and different functions also to get uh, different levels of innovation. And uh, for some companies, particularly mid-sized companies, just to have access to world-class talent at all in a lot of digital settings, um, you know, a, a mid-sized third-tier automotive components manufacturer is looking for someone with the exact same skills profile that Capital One um, Target, um, Intel, and Apple are looking for. And, and so, you know, a lot of incentives for senior managers to think about this as a productivity raiser, but also a way to keep them world-class and skills and kind of sculpt their workforce to meet seasonality, supply and demand, whatever else. Um, but an operating manager, they essentially you know, in most settings, get evaluated and feel they get evaluated on do they meet their numbers? You know, do they succeed in, in overseeing whatever process they're running? And they don't think they're going to be let off the hook if, for example, they're supposed to complete a, a software upgrade or to um, develop a strategy for entering a new distribution channel and they relied on high-skilled gig talent to be part of their team, and those, and the, uh, those uh, gig workers don't deliver, well, you know, are, is, are they going to go to their boss and say, well, really, is the gig worker's fault? I don't think so. They don't think, they don't think they're going to get away with that, and they probably won't. There's another reason, too, I think that they're reluctant, which is it just requires 
different management. You don't have, if you will, the kind of coercive power of, well, because you work for me and I'm going to evaluate you. And if you want performance bonus or you want a raise or you want a promotion, uh, you better, you know, do a great job for me. They don't have um, the normal kind of management playbook that they run to oversee an all full-time employee or full or part-time employee um, teams. You have to think about it differently and that requires new muscles. CHROs and human assets um, organizations and, and I say this as the son of the longtime head of human assets at General Motors, well before it was bankrupt. It was a, that was back in the 70s. And I'm not aware of having a hostility to my dad. So I'm not trying to, to uh, badmouth uh, CHROs because of some childhood trauma. But you know, they've gotten more and more to be compliance-oriented organizations, risk-averse. And the employment law and the rules and regulations and talking to their buddies, the chief counsels, uh, you know, people, companies prefer to have working relationships that are tried and true, all documented where they know the rules of the road. And whether it's anything from um, avoiding a, a non-compliant gig worker to a gig worker that violates policy, let's you know, pick an obvious one, a harassment policy or something like that. CHRO organizations just say, gosh, no, we don't, we don't need the added complexity. And uh, now they're simultaneously often their recruiting function being uh, under a lot of pressure to find talent. And when the cupboard's bare in terms of candidates that meet your specification, you know, that, that puts them in this dilemma. They really prefer to have people that they can use their normal policies and procedures to, to uh, around employment to govern. But often if they can't find that person, they've got to take the plunge and, and try to rely on a, on, on, um, a contingent worker. Uh, so there's tension there, but on the whole, they're very cautious. I do a lot of uh, work with large tech companies on digital transformation and the people process and technology involved. And we often see that the people dragging their feet on change is middle management. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really interesting that in this case, middle management may be the biggest supporter of this shift. And I'm guessing that's because they're the ones getting the angry phone calls from customers when they don't have enough resources to meet their needs or they're not having the right skills showing up on site or the right you know, personality sometimes showing up on site. Uh, and to me, it's it's really a question of core versus context. And I, I did a, a webinar with Build Nation recently, and we talked about this. You know, core is what is the core value and competitive differentiator of your company. And typically, that is your intellectual property, your products. Uh, it's not necessarily your support organization or your field service organization. And if you can think of that as context, it's incredibly important, but it's not what makes you valuable in the marketplace. It gets a little bit easier uh, to look at outsourcing and using some different approaches. Uh, and I also think something you highlighted in your report is there's a lot of changes in 
uh, generational differences in how people approach the kind of jobs they want. And, you know, younger workers today are probably more likely to embrace one of these kind of gig economy uh, sort of approaches. Uh, we don't see them signing up for working for 10 years <laughs> for a single company. So the next thing I wanted to ask you about is, you know, the gig economy has changed how companies think about these flexible labor resources, what are the considerations companies need to make when they're working with individuals as opposed to working with a company? Well, I think the first thing, John, is that you have to keep that distinction in mind and that the, the companies are set up, just like they're set up to have full-time employees, when they have a vendor, they have a multiple services agreement and MSA, they've got rules and regulations and insurance requirements and a bunch of things that that a lot of, uh, kind of sole practitioners aren't going to have in place. So once you make a decision that you're going to tap into this pool, you have to recognize at a contractual and you know, business arrangement level that this is somewhat different than what you're used to. And you have to get skilled at using these platforms, just like you would um, using a procurement platform or something. Separately, it's very important that companies understand a, a couple of things. One is that you have to legitimize the use of these platforms. And that means not just have the C-suite say uh, in my interviews with, oh, we think this is an important resource, but have a, a um, a sponsor in the organization, it could even be the CEO, saying this is going to be an important resource for us. We're going to learn how to do this. We know we're not expert how to do this, so we'll probably stumble a few times along the way, but this is part of our future. That's going to allow people in those middle management roles who are under the gun, the way you described, to there's going to give them literal and psychological permission to go and try something new. For the the line manager that's engaging this type of talent. They could be a project manager in your IT department. They could be a regional uh, uh, customer service manager. They could be someone, um, you know, in marketing. What they have to do, and in some ways what they have to be encouraged to recognize and maybe even trained up a little bit on, is how do I structure a team where some of the workers are remote? And not just remote physically, but they're not part of the performance evaluation system. They're not paid like we are. They're not measured like we are. Um, they don't have the, the contextual knowledge and background in the way we do things around here in our company that we kind of assume as a team leader or the manager, uh, everyone has. So it requires a, a, a little bit different set of managerial uh, design, if you will, the process. And I have to think, for example, about how to, what data do I need to give this contingent worker, this gig worker, so that they can do the job I need them to do? I can't assume that they know a lot necessarily about our market or our product or our history or our, who's our you know, if there are three customers they're dealing with, who always gets the platinum service and, and who drops to number three on the list. So I have, to, I have to be more specific in my tasking of work. I have to ask different questions because uh, that, that worker may not 
know things that they have to call out for me, particularly in their first couple of engagements. And there's a real learning curve in how you structure work that cuts across a blended population of contingent workers and full-time workers. And finally, you have to be very, very aware of the impact of the presence of that contingent worker on other on your full-time staff. Uh, it's everything from, you know, the, that contingent worker might be making considerably more per hour, or that could be the suspicion of your worker. What, how are you going to manage that? Uh, how are you going to manage that if if there's some friction between these these players? So. You know, it, 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 I think as, as companies and then their managers begin to rely more and more on these platforms out of necessity, they're going to go down that experience curve and get um, more skilled at it. But it's, it's going to be a ride down an experience curve. It's not something we just say, well, we're going to do this project and we're going to get three people from the outside to help us out with it. And I'm going to run Jeff like I've run every other project I've ever supervised my life. That's not going to work. So these uh, retiring workers that, you know, they've got so much skills and experience, but at, at some point you're just not willing to spend 10 hours a day in a truck, um, 50 hours a week. Do you see some of those workers possibly coming back as, as part-time gig workers? Yep. I think this is, is one of the very exciting benefits that doesn't often get mentioned enough, but we and, and I think what will happen over time is these platforms will allow people to either design their lifestyle to include work uh, or to accommodate uh, the, the, the or help offset some of the reasons people leave the workforce. Let, let's take one of those older workers. One of those older workers may be saying, you know, uh, I've got um, some you know, physical challenges now, maybe arthritis or something. And I really don't want to go out on the 40 days a year where it's below 20 degrees Fahrenheit out there. But I'm perfectly happy to work in seasonal weather. So maybe become a seasonal employee or, or a worker that says, uh, you know, it's, I, I use myself an example. I, I live in, in a suburb of Boston. I have a house in out the Western part of the state in the Berkshires. Um, I don't, if I want to go out to that house, I really don't want to leave Boston on Friday afternoon. That's going to double the length of the drive from about two hours to four, four and a half hours. So if I could say to my employer, look, uh, between Memorial Day and Halloween, I'm just not available Fridays. Uh, and and But I'm happy to be a contingent worker Monday through Thursday. So that allows... Um, a worker to, to begin to maybe ease into retirement or accommodate specific interests that they've got. And I think COVID's really going to accelerate the discussion between employers and employees about this, John, that, that whether or not, whether it's, I really like having breakfast in the morning with my kids, but I can't have breakfast with my kids and be downtown at 8.30, which is what my boss expects now. All of a sudden that might be discussable or it might be discussable, I want Fridays off in the summer, or I want to work remotely on Friday mornings in the summer, or whatever it is. Um, I think this is probably going to be um, what, what contingent work platforms are going to allow these high-skilled gig workers uh, to do is to customize their work a little bit more, but it's also going to enable 
companies to tap into reservoirs of talent that they're not going to get on a nine to five, uh, 50 weeks a year basis any longer. You know, you you mentioned the impact of the pandemic, and we know from some surveys we did with our members that about a third of tech companies laid off uh, quite a few field service workers at the beginning of the pandemic because they knew they simply weren't going to be able to use them for a considerable amount of time. Yep. And real, the downside to that is once people started returning to the office, there was a huge <laughs> surge in demand yeah. because you had all this equipment that had been yeah. going unserviced. A lot of, lot of jam copiers, right? So I, I would think that, you know, if you're, this is only going to accelerate adoption of this approach because you've laid those workers off. They may have found other jobs are not willing to come back and you've got to fill that void somehow. Yep. And, and I want to come back to something as well, which is what you just described, of course, is a, a unpredictable cyclical event. And that can happen either because there's a major there's a recession, there's some kind of economic disruption like COVID, or it could be, gee, we had a strategy and it kind of flopped. Now we're overstaffed. Well, I think what contingent works in a lot of companies to do over time is to sculpt their workforce and, and staff more to the trough of their projection than to the peak of their projection. Mm-hmm. You know, companies staff to budget and you know, budgets based on a forecast. And I can guarantee you, and in my 30 years of being a consulting CEO before I became a professor. I never saw an industry where everybody's growth forecast didn't add up to like 350% of market growth. Someone's going to lose. Someone's not going to hit their budget, but they're all going to staff to budget. So if all of a sudden I can kind of put more of a shock absorber in my cost structure, yeah, I may pay a little bit of a premium price for that contingent talent relative to if I was right on forecast. But in terms of risk management, it's going to be, it's going to give companies a lot more ability to flex. I think there's one other theme I'd just like to pick up on in your illustration, John, which is if you whether it's core or context, if you've got a capability you've got to deliver, you've got to be really careful about treating your talent base as some kind of infinitely flexible expense, which I can. Um, you know, cut or you know, with with impunity. It, one of the things I think is kind of most bizarre in business speak, if you will, is you know we treat our our we we call our personnel human assets, but we treat them as human ex- expenses. <laughs> you know, we're not we're not those same people who were radically downsizing their service staff because. They might be 30 or 120 days or 150 days away from knowing whether they're going to need them. They didn't um, write off or sell all their manufacturing equipment. They didn't um, you know, sh- uh, shut down their mainframe computers and their networks because, the, you know, because those are assets. Well, it's, if, if we're going to have to, in this world, think a little bit more about staff as actual assets as opposed to um, a you know uh, 1099 worker and uh, or a W2 worker. 
So I want to touch on one thing quickly, and then we'll open it up to our, our group discussion. I alluded earlier about uh, the changes in, in demographic attitudes, uh, age demographics toward, toward work. And, you know, on average, field service organizations have a very low attrition rate. It's averaging about 7%, which compares to tech support organizations that are 15%. So I think a lot of companies haven't had a lot of experience with, mm-hmm. with younger workers, and my suspicion suspicion is younger workers are more interested in this type of work paradigm. And do you think that just because of age demographics, this is ultimately going to be the dominant form of, of employment? Yeah, I think I, I think there is legitimate data to support that. But I do want to put a couple of amendments on that response. One is, you know, young people have been saying that they don't want to live the lives of their parents since Cain and Abel. So, um, <laughs> you know, when you ask a 22-year-old, well, how many companies do you anticipate working for? And uh, when you think about the jobs you want in the future, would you prefer to be flexible where you can live wherever you want and pick your projects? Or are you just going to go work like your mom and dad did or, or your grandparents did for some company and do what you're told? guess what? They're going to say the former. Well, 10 years later, they could have, you know, a spouse, you know, a kid, a kid on the way, a dog, and all of a sudden stability and a predictability uh, has a whole lot more appeal. The, the, the other thing I, I wanted to say is that, that um, right now, and I think this is particularly relevant for the types of, of companies that Field Nation serves, um, that by the time someone gets ready to enter the workforce, um, you know, they're not kind of immediately attracted into some types of jobs. But if you can work with them earlier in their lives through co-op programs, through work-based learning, partnering with school districts, uh, you know, having work-based learning apprenticeships, um, you can begin to create enthusiasm for types of work, which will help bolster the supply of workers and not make companies fully reliant on uh, third-party platforms. Because if suddenly everyone's relying on these platforms, then you get a supply-demand imbalance. So staff to a core and have a strategy to have that core and then use contingent workers to fill out your geographic footprint, service, narrow parts of your product line, uh, you know, staff to service level agreements that are beyond your norm, you know, backfill geographies, things like that. All right. Well, Professor Fuller, I appreciate you having this dialogue with me. And-